What does it mean to be the church? What is the church? What is the significance of the church? And do we understand what it is in its beauty? Do we see the significance of our role as a part of God's church? As a part of the ecclesia, the called out ones by the grace of God, called out from death into life. We are starting a new study through First and Second Timothy and Titus, living out the living Christ as the people of God. And it is my hope that as we walk through this study and open God's word, that you would be equipped to know truly what is the church. See it in its beauty, that the church is more than the building and the structures that you see, but it is the people of God whom God has called out by his grace. It is my hope and prayer that through this time that you will come to love the church, even as God himself loves the church. And that in our private lives, our individual lives, as well as our corporate lives, as a community, that the living Christ will be clearly seen among us. My methodology this morning, I want to share a little bit about the way we're going to tackle this book series, and specifically this morning, because today we're going to be looking at a broader overview and context of the pastoral epistles. That's what these three books are called, the pastoral epistles, what theologians call them. There might be a better term in the sense that this is letter to the churches. It's not just to the pastors, if you will, Timothy and Titus, because seeing the plural form of the Greek throughout the book, even though he is speaking to Timothy or to Titus, he's constantly using a plural form like Timothy, Titus, and all of you listen to what we're about to say, because Paul is deeply concerned that the church is equipped and has an understanding of who they are and how they are to live out the Christ. So this morning's going to be broad context and overview. We're going to go from landscape to specific location, broad picture down to specific verses. Throughout this series, and if you've been at Heritage long enough and you've heard me preach, you'll see that sometimes three to five minutes every sermon, sometimes even longer, we spend on review looking where we have been, looking at where we're going, regaining our context of the broader corpus of Scripture, because I firmly believe that if we can understand where we are located, it helps us keep the individual texts in their context, but also see the greater narrative of Scripture as it plays out. So today, general context and overview, and one other note, that with the preaching on Sunday morning. Part of my teaching ministry to you is also through the podcast, FocusedOnChrist.com. If you haven't gone there, FocusedOnChrist.com, Pastor Mike and myself, the goal is once a week, just for about 20 minutes, we are going through a biblical theology of Scripture. We're going through major aspects as we're reading through God's Word and praise God, well over 500 of you have signed up to read through God's Word in a year. That's fantastic. Let us rejoice together and edify one another with God's word. But as you come and sit in the preaching Sunday morning, I would also encourage you, go to focusonchrist.com and listen to the podcast, keep pace with it as it will help be formative in your biblical theology and also help prepare you even as we go into our study in Timothy. Let's look at a thesis text, a text that governs our understanding of the pastoral epistles for 2 Timothy and Titus. And this is 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 14 to 16. And in it, Paul shares his heart. 
what he wants the churches to hear and know and understand. And everything kind of flows out of this text. Beginning in verse 14. I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up in glory. So Paul is not with Timothy. Paul is elsewhere. He writes this letter. It's an epistle that we call it. An epistle is a letter. It comes from the Greek word epistole. And when we look at this letter, he is writing to instruct them and helping to encourage them to, that they understand who they are and how one ought to behave. Now, if someone asks you, what is the church? This is a great verse to point them to because there are three distinct pictures that he gives. He says the church is, number one, the household of God. What is a household? A household is a family identity, a shared community with a shared dignity in that identity. In the ancient world, often people introduce themselves not with their last name or family name, but often with their household name, whichever household they were associated with. So Silvanus of the household of, and then maybe he would name someone of prominence. If you were a servant or a worker or a soldier, you were of the household of to distinguish your identity. Paul says, do you not know that you are of the household bearing the family dignity of Jesus Christ himself? That he is your Lord and Savior, that he is your friend, that he is your older brother, that he is your king? You, brothers and sisters, if you are in Christ, share the family name and dignity and honor of being a part of the household of God. The church is also called the church of the living God or the ecclesia of the living God, the called out ones of the living God, called out of death into life, and we serve a living God, not a memorialized faith, but a living God, living, breathing. It is a beautiful thing. Have you ever thought that when you sing on Sunday morning, that when you utter your words in praise, as you are actively generating that volume, that God who is living is actively leaning forward and listening to what you sing and delighting in it? This beautiful living God who right now reigns and is on the throne. We are singing not to an idol, not to a concept. We are singing to a God who reigns, to Jesus Christ who is not in the grave, but is seated at the right hand of his Father and actively delights in leaning in and listening to his children. We have a living God. We are the called out ones of the living God. The church is a pillar and buttress of the truth pillar, that central architectural feature that upholds the roof. And in the ancient world, roofs made out of stone and marble, the pillars had to be strong to showcase the beauty of those capitals on the top of the pillars or of those structures that showcase the handiwork of the artisan. A buttress, a foundation. But more than a foundation, the buttress is an aspect of the foundation that particularly supports the structures for defense. 
This imagery is fascinating. Because the church is not supposed to just simply communicate truth, it is the means by which God has ordained to uphold and to defend and to beautify truth. The truth is the Word of God. The Word of God, the Scriptures, authoritative. It is the barometer by which we gauge all existence. It is the line, the measuring rod by which we define reality. But God in his amazing grace has chosen you and I, the church of the living God, to be the channel, the means by which the truth is supported and beautified. How we live as a church can beautify the truth of the word of God or it can debase it. It is a weighty honor. Paul says, do you not know? You're the household of the living God, the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. And this truth, let me spell it out for you, Paul says, in reminder, and perhaps we have the first hymn of the church or one of the first confessions in verse 16. Great indeed we confess is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up in glory. This truth that you uphold is that this God came in the flesh, the incarnation. He came, vindicated by the Spirit, the Spirit who lived and dwelt upon him, showcasing his purity and perfection, and then dying on the cross, raised from the dead three days later, that vindication showing that Jesus is who he said he was and the Spirit vindicates him by raising him from the dead and declaring him to be both Lord and King. He is then seen by the angels or messengers even could be translated. He is seen by many and testified that he is indeed alive. Proclaimed among the nations that the scope of this gospel is to the nations. It's written here right into the early church confession. He is to be proclaimed not only in Jerusalem, but in Judea and Samaria and the uttermost parts of the earth. Believed on in the world. People believing by faith, not by works, not by ethnic identity, but by faith, believing in him. He who is taken up in glory. He who is alive. Do you see even by the verbiage and the phraseology of this verse that the Apostle Paul, that Timothy, that the early church, they lived and believed a living Christ. That's who they proclaimed. And they wanted their community to represent and to reflect that. Paul is writing to Timothy during a particular battle that Timothy is facing. He wants to assure him and the church that they know how to live out Christ and that living out Christ well matters. If you were to write a big idea today, the big idea is really the reason for why Paul wrote this book, that the way we live out Christ matters. The way we live out Christ matters. And brothers and sisters, nothing has changed today. The way we live out Christ as Heritage Baptist Church matters greatly. But who is Paul? Who is Timothy? I've been mentioning them. Assuming that you understand who these people are, and many of you probably do, but some of you do not. Or maybe this will be a helpful refreshment and encouragement of the two lives of these men and the story that God wove to showcase his grace through them. So let's take a moment, let's review Acts chapter 2, and then let's briefly walk through Acts and see who Paul and Timothy are. Acts chapter 2. 
the great glorious beginning of the church. Three weeks ago, I talked that the church is the beginning of the great reversal. The first thing the church reverses is the beginning of reversing the judgment of God in removing his presence. Because in Acts chapter two, the first thing that happens is the return of God's presence, the Holy Spirit coming and dwelling in power, the return of the presence of God. The church is also the beginning of the reversal of Babel. You remember in the book of Genesis, the Tower of Babel that scattered the nations? Well, Acts 2 is the beginning of the regathering of the nations. The church is also the reversal or the beginning of the reversal of the mysteries of the promise of the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, there was mystery. Who is going to be the Messiah? When will he come? What will he do? But the church is a living, breathing fulfillment of ancient promise that we know who the Messiah is. It is Jesus Christ. The church is also heralds of the reversal of death's reign. We herald the reversal of death's reign in Christ that as we go to the nations, we are proclaiming that death does not have dominion, that Christ has reversed death and we go forward proclaiming a message that rolls back death through the proclamation of the gospel and the power of the Spirit. The church is also the kingdom of God It's a foretaste of the kingdom of God. And it begins the reversal of the kingdom of darkness. We see in the end of Acts chapter 2 that the church then begins to live out and proclaim Christ and people start being drawn to Christ. And day by day, they're together with glad and generous hearts, selling possessions, giving to one another. And the Lord is adding to their number daily, day by day, those who are being saved. And in the life of the church, Christ is, is beautifully seen. It is so important to note that it is the church where Christ has chosen to make himself known. When we look at a sunset and we look at the nature around us, we see a beautiful God, a majestic God, but you cannot find Christ by staring into a flower or by enjoying a sunset. If you have preconceived notions of Christ, you already know Christ, then you can see him in his beauty everywhere. But When we talk about revelation, where Christ is seen and understood, the person, the work of the Son of God, God in his amazing grace has chosen to make the Son, Jesus, visible in one place only, through the church in the preaching and the sharing of the word of God. You are bearers, brothers and sisters, of the image of Christ. You are holders of the gospel of Christ, images of his majesty, This is the dignity to which we have been called. Now, after Acts 2 introduces us to the church, then the church begins to expand greatly across the Mediterranean to where within just a few decades, the church has expanded beyond Jerusalem into Rome and to Central Asia and to Ethiopia and to Southern Spain and beginning its march across North Africa. To give some bearings, we actually have a map here for you. You can put that map up there. Thank you. This is a map that shows a little bit of the first missionary journey of Paul. But if you're not familiar with the ancient world, some of the names may escape you. But you have Jerusalem down here on the right. You have Damascus, Antioch, which is the place where Christians were first called Christians. You have Ephesus up on the far left, the Mediterranean in the center. Going left, you're going into Rome and then towards Spain. As the church begins to expand across the ancient world, so do the battles. In Acts 3, 
There's an expanding witness concerning Christ. Then there is persecution as people resist it. In Acts chapter 5, we see sin take hold within the church as Ananias and Sapphira lie to the Holy Spirit and are struck dead by the Spirit. People ask and say, Pastor, do you believe in being slain by the Holy Spirit? And I say, absolutely. If you have the Apostle Peter as your pastor and you lie to the Holy Spirit, you're in bad luck, bad shape. You will be slain. In this apostolic event where Peter, an emissary of the Holy Spirit, and Ananias and Sapphira are coming in in pride and deception so that they can be well thought of by their peers, all external religiosity, are struck dead by the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit then declares and says, my church is holy. You do not treat my church lightly or my name lightly. But almost as soon as the church begins, battles begin. In Acts chapter 6, we see phenomenal growth, so much so to the point that they don't know what to do with all the people. They don't know how to shepherd them well. They even go through conflict of, hey, the Hellenistic widows or the, the Greek widows are being neglected in the daily distribution of the food and they have to have this counsel and think through, how do we make sure that this growing body of believers are not neglected? It's a church that the battle of the church faced way at the beginning and we still face today. And then hostility from without again. In Acts chapter seven, one of the godly leaders of the early church, Stephen, stands up and gives a phenomenal historical defense of the Christian faith. And at the end of that defense, they pick up stones, stone him, and Stephen becomes the first Christian martyr. And it's at this event that off to the side is a young man named Saul holding the coats of those who stoned Stephen to death. Saul, who would become Paul, one of the early persecutors who loved and had an affection and even a passion for destroying the church. In Acts chapter 8, we see the Apostle Paul that he was ravaging the church and entering house after house and he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. But in Acts chapter 9 on the Damascus Road as he's going to the church to destroy it in another city, Jesus the living Christ meets him on the road and Paul or Saul says, who are you? And Jesus, not dead, but alive in person, says, I am Christ, the one who you're persecuting. Because when you persecute my church, you persecute me. Do you see the, the identity and how linked it is that to persecute the church is to persecute Christ, to profane the church in the way that we conduct it? If we treat it lightly, we profane the name of Christ. The church is beautiful to Jesus, that he identifies himself with us and with his church. And in that moment, Saul becomes Paul. Paul becomes then a great preacher to the Gentiles. Years pass. And I should note that between Acts chapter 9 and the end of the book of Acts, though we read it and it seems to all go pretty quickly, from Acts 9 to the end of the book of Acts is almost 30 years so keep that in mind as the chronology of the church unfolds. And the book of Acts, by the way, we say it's a history of the church, and it is, but it's actually a legal brief. You see, in the end of the book of Acts, the apostle Paul is imprisoned, and his companion, Luke, the doctor, takes upon it himself to write up a defense to Theophilus, friend of God's, his name, a magistrate, 
who was overseeing the trial of Paul. And Luke writes the Gospel of Luke to give an account. And then he writes the book of Acts. Both of these are legal briefs and defenses of the Apostle Paul. But Paul here in Acts chapter 10 through 13 with the other apostles is going to the nations. He's gone from persecutor to preacher. And then in Acts 14, he comes to Lystra, the apostle Paul. Now Lystra is up in southern Asia. You can actually see Ephesus and then Lystra. You can see those arrows right up there. Lystra is a place where they come into this city a great miracle is done as they're proclaiming the word of God and everybody thinks that the gods have come down in the form of Paul and his traveling companion. When they refuse that worship, the Jews also come, stir up the city, and the city takes Paul, casts him outside, and stones him, leave him for dead. He gets back up, walks back in the city, and continues his ministry. Well, this is Lystra. This testimony had a great impact on this city. Many people came to faith in Christ because of Paul's bold witness. One of those people that saw everything that happened was a young man named Timothy. Timothy was from Lystra. He undoubtedly saw and heard the confidence and the power of the gospel as lives were changed. And we find Paul in Acts 16 come back to Lystra and to Derbe, these two cities close by him, and Paul is impressed with this young Timothy. And it says in Acts 16 that Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him. So he took him and they began ministering across the Mediterranean. Timothy becomes the most prominent associate of the Apostle Paul. Maybe co-equal with Luke, the good doctor. But you see, Luke was a recorder, a helper, an assistant. He was not a preacher but he was a great help to the preacher, the missionary Paul. But Timothy was a protege of Paul who shared in the preaching, who shared in the ministry, so much so that Timothy is mentioned in eight of Paul's letters. He's one of the most frequently mentioned associates of Paul. Few early church figures were as privy to Paul's movements and teachings as was Timothy. Acts chapter 19 finds Paul and Timothy in Ephesus. Ephesus, one of the centers of false worship with Artemis, Diana, this cultic worship. Paul begins to preach the word of God with Timothy, his associate, and there great battles are ignited, spiritual warfare as people push back against the gospel of the living Christ. Great battle is ignited, battle that seemed to last for years. Because even in Revelation chapter 2 and the risen Christ is confronting different churches, Ephesus is mentioned by name. Ephesus right up there on the left, you can go there today, see magnificent ruins. But Ephesus is mentioned and writing to the church at Ephesus, Jesus says, I know your toils, your trials, the battles that you are facing. This was a center of warfare, perhaps one of the centers of spiritual warfare unlike many other places across the Mediterranean. Now keep that in mind because we'll come back to Ephesus in just a moment. The end of Acts finds Paul on his way to Rome for his first imprisonment and the book of Acts ends. Now Paul was imprisoned once at the end of the book of Acts and then he was released and then he was imprisoned a second time and then he was martyred. Jesus was crucified somewhere in the mid-30s A.D., that puts the imprisonment of 
Paul under Nero somewhere in the mid-60s AD. So again, 30 years from the crucifixion to the end of the book of Acts to the imprisonment. Now, where are 1st, 2nd Timothy and Titus located? They, have, they occupy a special place in this chronology. After Paul got out of prison at the end of Acts, he then writes 1st Timothy. And then he writes Titus. He's imprisoned a second time. And it's while in prison he writes 2nd Timothy, the last letter before he is killed. When Paul writes 1st Timothy, after he gets out of prison the first time, He's writing to Timothy, who is where? In Ephesus. One of the places where Paul invested many years of ministry and effort. A place of battle and conflict. So much so that even when we find 1 Timothy and begin reading through it, you can see that the Apostle Paul is urging Timothy to wage the good war, to conduct yourself like a good soldier of Christ, to make sure that we understand and they understand what it means to be the church of the living God and that they behave in a way that honors and walks in a way worthy of Christ in a culture that is extremely hostile to the gospel. Brothers and sisters, this should sound familiar. When we say that we want to get back to what the early church was, you know what the early church was? It was a church in conflict that struggled with division and challenge and doctrinal compromise and asking questions like, what does it mean to be the people of God in a culture that hates God? And we are asking the same questions. Missionaries have to ask the same questions. Global workers, when people get saved out of a Muslim background, what does it mean to be a follower of Christ coming out of a Muslim background and living in a way that honors him? What does it mean to come out of a Hindu background? What does it mean in that culture to demonstrate and declare that we are the people of God? These are questions that all of us should be asking. What does it mean? What does it look like? And I promise you the culture will not understand it. They will hate us for it. So many of the things in 1 Timothy and Titus, if we read it with a Western modern lens, there are several things that are just going to irk us until we bring it into alignment under God's word. As we look at the book of Acts, the book of Acts is happening at a time of expansion of the church. The book of 1st, 2nd Timothy and Titus are there to explain what the Lord has done in Christ. Here's a helpful acrostic. If you think about looking at scriptures in its totality, here's an acrostic, P-M-E-E-C. P-M-E-E-C. The Old Testament is preparation for the gospel. P. The Old Testament is preparation for the gospel. And in the Old Testament, we see hints of the gospel everywhere. Many of you who are reading through God's word um, just read through the life of Joseph and if you look through Genesis 39 to the end of the book of Genesis, this life of Joseph, what do we see? We see a man appointed for a certain place in time, even through suffering and injustice, in the providence and the sovereignty of God, raised to a place where he can intercede on behalf of a people so that they can escape the death of famine. See that redemptive arc? That's found throughout the Old Testament. Does this sound familiar? 
Jesus Christ, the one raised up at a specific place in time through injustice and suffering, but through the providence of God, raised up at the cross to be an intercessor for a people that we might escape the famine, the eternal famine of hell. That redemptive arc plays out again and again through the Old Testament as it prepares us with a vision for the gospel. P, preparation. M, manifestation. The gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, where we see Jesus, this is manifesting the gospel in the flesh, Jesus himself. Preparation, manifestation. E, expansion of the gospel, the book of Acts. This is the gospel now moving to the nations. And then the Second E, P-M-E-E-C, preparation, manifestation, uh, expansion, explanation. The epistles of the New Testament, the letters of the New Testament outside of the gospels are largely to explain the gospel manifested, what it means, the cross, what it means, the resurrection, and how we should live. And then the final acrostic, C, consummation, the book of Revelation, consummation, or completion as the gospel is brought to its fullness. So Acts is the expansion. First and second Timothy and Titus, explanation. If this is who Christ is, if this is what he is doing, as the gospel is moving across the nations, this is how we should live and conduct ourselves. The New Testament letters themselves are written to encourage to realign and sometimes confront churches who have gotten off from what it means to, be, be, to behave as the church of the living God and the pillar of truth, who've gotten away from those basic confessions of who Christ is. I mean, the early church, even in the, the Jerusalem council in the book of Acts, what were they wrestling over? What does it mean to be God's people? Do we have to be circumcised like in the Old Testament? Or is it by grace alone through Christ? There were conflicts even so that the Apostle Paul and the Apostle Peter went head to head in the book of Galatians where Peter was starting to be drawn aside into, yeah, if you want to be the people of God, you need to follow the food laws of the Old Testament. And Paul is standing there like, what are you thinking, Peter? That totally denies the grace that Christ purchased for us on the cross. Through the first couple of centuries of the early church with the Council of Chalcedon, the Council of Nicaea, and many other councils wrestling, who is Christ? What does it mean to be the people of God? Okay. That was a really broad overview, isn't it? First and Second Timothy. Let's go back to First Timothy chapter 3, verse 14. In the context of all of the battles that are raging, and where Timothy finds himself in Ephesus, the Apostle Paul, Timothy, don't forget what the church is. Don't forget who you are, the household of God, the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Don't forget who Christ is. And how we live him out matters so that how we treat the Old Testament matters, how we celebrate the grace of God matters how men and women conduct themselves in worship and in roles within worship matters. That there should be elders and godly men and women throughout the church and that spiritual qualifications matter. There should be godly role-specific leadership. 
That the word of God is in fact the word of God breathed out by the Holy Spirit. Timothy, my beloved son in the faith, Paul writes, keep your eyes fixed in the middle of the warfare. In the fog of war, do not be drawn aside. Every chapter of 1st, 2nd Timothy and Titus contains a reference to God. As Paul wants Timothy to make sure he stays focused on the big picture of who God is. But he also wants Timothy to challenge people. And he wants the church listening in on this. There's the plural form of the Greek that's constantly saying, hey church, do you hear this? Do you hear this? How you conduct yourselves esteems Christ or debases him. You bear the name of Christ. You're to walk in a way of purity and holiness and obedience from here in Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the uttermost parts of the earth so that Christ might be known in his beauty. Jesus' final words in the book of Matthew go into all the world. And that as we go into the world, there are going to be battles in the church in its frailty and in its weakness that we see in the book of Acts and we see even in ourselves today. We are a weak people. We are a broken people in need of God's grace. But praise be to God, because Jesus Christ is living, we know that he is going to build his church despite our frailties and failures. That's not an excuse to be frail or fail. But because Christ is living, we know he's going to build his church here to the uttermost parts of the world. But let's be a church worthy of the name of Christ. We have been given a mandate from our king. The same mandate that was given 2,000 years ago stands today. Heritage Baptist Church, it is not time to dig a foxhole and wait for the second coming. It is time to get out of the trenches, charge the enemy front lines because Jesus Christ is living and he said he's going to build his church. So brothers and sisters, we have work to do to be a people of the living Christ from Jerusalem all the way to the uttermost parts of the world. Would you pray with me this morning? Heavenly Father, help us to remember what you've made us in Christ. Help our affections and lives to reflect our identity in Christ. Help us remember that you are building your church and even though there's challenges and failures and frailties, we trust that the living Christ reigns. Jesus, be our living King, our living Lord over this church, Heritage Baptist Church. Not on our merits, not in our gifts, but we pray based on the grace of Christ that you would bless this people. Bless us with things way beyond riches or wealth or good health. Matter of fact, we pray that if you must take those things away, so be it. So that we might bless, be blessed with the riches of Christ only. Help us to be a people who live out the living Christ. Help me help us to be a people who walk worthy of the living Christ. Because how we live out Christ matters. 
Household of the living God. Church of the living God. A pillar of a living faith found in the living word of God. May all glory be to Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. And in Jesus' name we pray all of these things. And all God's people said together, Amen. Amen.